0: Hey guys, this is Emmett. Welcome to Exhaust, your weekly podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today, I am joined by both John hey guys, and Canada Mike. Hey. We are doing another American Canon episode. This time, we are focusing on two authors. We are taking a look at H.P. Lovecraft, and then we are taking a look at Harlan Ellison. Guys, separated by basically two world wars, and the American experience of Vietnam. And we're gonna look at some pretty heavy stories that they churned out, but before we get to that, I'm going to read our opening incantation, which is from our favorite sad boy poet laureate, Edgar Allan Poe. This is The City and the Sea, and I hope why we read this at the beginning will become clear by the time we finish our discussion. Lo, death has reared himself a throne in a strange city lying alone, far down within the dim west, where the good and the bad and the worst and the best have gone to their eternal rest. Their shrines and palaces and towers, time-eaten towers that tremble not, resemble nothing that is ours. Around, by lifting winds forgot, resignedly beneath the sky the melancholy waters lie. No rays from the holy heaven come down on the night on the long nighttime of that town but light from out the lurid sea streams up the turret silently gleams up the pinnacles far and free up domes, up spires, up kingly halls, up fanes, up Babylon-like walls, up shadowy long-forgotten bowers of sculptured ivy and stone flowers, up many and many a marvelous shrine whose wreathed friezes intertwine. The vial, the violet and the vine, resignedly beneath the sky the melancholy waters lie. So blend the turrets and shadows there that all seem pendulous in air, while from a proud tower in the town death looks gigantically down. There open fanes and gaping graves yon level with the luminous waves, but not the riches there that lie in each idol's diamond eye, not the gaily jeweled dead tempt the waters from their bed, for no ripples curl, alas, along that wilderness of glass. No swellings tell that winds may be upon some far-off happier sea. No heavings hint that winds have been on seas less hideously serene. But lo, a stir is in the air, the wave, there is a movement there, as if the towers had thrust aside and slightly sinking the dull tide, as if their tops had feebly given a void within the filmy heaven. The waves have now a redder glow. The hours are breathing faint and low. And when amid no earthly moans, down, down, that town shall settle hence. Hell rising from a thousand thrones shall do it reverence. All right, lads. With help from Edgar, let's get it going. We're going to start with Edgar Allan Poe and we're going to be talking about call of cthulhu i think the first entry entry in the cthulhu mythos right um i don't know i don't know <laughs> it's hard because they're not really well organized and they're not supposed to be which i guess is something we can talk about yeah it's the mythos definitely the most... is kind of
1: a vague yeah grouping of things it's hard to know where something came in first but Yeah. Yeah. So I did a lot of digging into everything I could find trying to get to stuff written by Lovecraft because I was interested in what I could turn up about him as a person and a writer or whatever. And thankfully he wrote this thing called Supernatural Horror and Literature, which is like a breezy 60 something page essay about supernatural horror and literature from the earliest times until now. And I have to say... It's probably my favorite thing of his I've ever read, like better than his stories, for sure. <laughs> it, um, it's just like nice to read. He's a very even-handed critic. He'll talk about why something fails, but then do his best to make some positive comments about it, which is like really interesting to me hmm. to notice that about him. Even he'll say this was pretty insipid, but like they had a definite power to like do this and this with their style. So it still bears like worth reading even now. And he goes through like a voluminous amount of works once you get to 17, 1800s onwards of both American British and German and a little bit of French horror writing, it was pretty interesting. But he leaves a lot of clues about the way that he's looking at stuff in it. And he had a little thing about the importance of Poe, which I thought might just be fun for our listeners to hear. It was a callback to when we talked about the hero here. Before Poe, the bulk of weird writers had worked largely in the dark without an understanding of the psychological basis of the horror appeal and hampered by more or less conformity to certain empty literary conventions, such as the happy ending, virtue rewarded, and in general, a hollow moral didacticism, acceptance of popular standards and values and striving of the author to obtrude his own emotions into the story and take sides with the partisans of the majority's artificial ideas. Poe, on the other hand, perceived the essential impersonality of the real artist and knew that the function of creative fiction is merely to express and interpret events and sensations as they are, regardless of how they tend or what they prove good or evil, attractive or repulsive, stimulating or depressing with the author always acting as a vivid and detached chronicler rather than as a teacher, sympathizer, or vendor of opinion. <clears throat> and he Bearing that in mind, he had another little thing that I thought was worth knowing about where he has a, it's like a few paragraph little essay called Notes on Writing Weird Fiction, where he pretty much flatly states what the entire literary project he's engaging in is. And he says, my reason for writing stories is to give myself the satisfaction of visualizing more clearly and detailedly. And stably, the vague, elusive, fragmentary impressions of wonder, beauty, and adventurous expectancy, which are conveyed to me by certain sights, ideas, occurrences, and images encountered in art and in literature. I choose weird stories because they suit my inclination best, one of my strongest and most persistent wishes being to achieve momentarily the illusion of some strain, suspension, or violation of the galling limitations of time, space, and natural law which forever imprison us and frustrate our curiosity about the infinite cosmic spaces beyond the radius of our sight and analysis. And he goes on to say that his choice of using horror is primarily because he thinks it's the oldest and deepest of all human emotions, and thus it is the most well-suited to breaking the materialist mind out of its habit of perceiving everywhere like the law and the boundaries of quote unquote like ordinary life so that that stuff was like interesting to me because it made it all seem like much more of a pastime somewhere else he calls himself an amateur like a doddler he doesn't at least in that passage seem to take himself very seriously as like an artist I think he was more interested in his poetry in terms of thinking about real art than his fiction. But so it painted a picture for me of an extremely staunch New England materialist in the early 20th century who, well, one thing worth mentioning is he, in his early days, especially cribbed from Lord Dunsany, if you guys know him, he was a Irish author in the early 20th century who wrote... (laughs) A lot of fantasy, some dramas, a whole bunch of stuff. He was like extremely prolific. And uh, legend has it that everything he ever produced was a first draft dictated to like, a typing maid.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome.
1: Which, yeah, that's pretty cool, whether or not it's true. He's on and that
0: every- Aquinas drip.
1: Pretty much. Everything about Lord Dunsany is essentially like the use of King James Bible prose repetition, a lot of the use of and 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 it's almost like Cormac McCarthy, who I think mm-hmm. drew from the same, to produce this like narcotic effect. And what for Dunthany, the entire point of it was to cast you into this like enthralling world of like dream, essentially. Like the stories and plots are there for different purposes, but like for everything that I've read of his, it was essentially the power of atmosphere, mood and things like that, which have an effect on you. And Lovecraft is essentially just copying his style, like cribbing it 100% in the early days. He eventually grows out of that a little bit, I think. But it's really, I guess it's interesting to see how, because that seems to be Dunsany's essential preoccupation as well, as just all-out warfare against normal life and anything tawdry, boring, or simple.
0: Yeah, I think what's different, and we get to this in called Cthulhu, which is has one of my favorite horror tropes. And that's of like the archival, like digging through of somebody's old records and retelling the story of a half forgotten cult and these figures of like almost slimy green stone that reference the priest Cthulhu, who will one day raise from the dead, <laughs> the timeless ancient ones who've been living in earth all along and whose existence basically makes human life totally meaningless. And I say this because it's obvious that, that that Lovecraft isn't trying to enthrall, but he is trying to eject you from reference, I would say. Whereas like Tsani, having not read his work, but knowing how much fantasy goes, as much as it transports you to something else, it tries to still build a world that will be intelligible to you in terms of why people are doing things and what matters. Lovecraft wants to put you someplace else. I think that's what's important. Like When it describes at some point the world of these ancient ones that gets whispered to artists in their dreams in Call of Cthulhu, everything's non-Euclidean. That's one really of my crucial. favorite
1: repeated phrases.
0: Yeah. And anybody who's <laughs> Cyclopean. Done, like, Cyclopean. That's really important too. Like, so that goes back to the Odyssey where you get Polyphemus, obviously who we've talked about the Odyssey on the show, but who can't be human, can't live anything like a human life because of the isolation and basically non-society. He lives in with other, Cyclops, if you've done Euclid and then gone to do non-Euclidean geometry, say Lobachevsky, who figures out how to, his theory of parallels is wild. Two lines that will definitely touch in Euclidean space, like will definitely touch each other in Euclidean space. And he goes, I'm going to prove to you that these are parallel. And by the end of the proof, what you logically have done is correct, but it feels like your like ocular sensibility is breaking down because it doesn't match the intuition of the data you're receiving on the page.
1: Yeah, which I think is essentially what he's trying to conjure up with because for anyone who hasn't read one, I can't imagine most people haven't. Like 90%, I think, of a lot of Lovecraft stories are like descriptions of architecture <laughs> and yeah. how yeah. horrifying they are. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, Yeah, it's like imaginary art criticism.
1: <laughs> the way in which the pillars, <laughs> obelisks, and doors seemingly occupied two different planes of existence at once. And you were not able to orient yourself and that whole kind of thing is like something he reaches for a lot. Yeah, that's interesting and it speaks to I think another one of his major literary kind of inspirations, which is Arthur Machen. I don't know if I'm saying his last name. He was Welsh. I'd never really heard of him before, but <clears throat> he was a uh, or I'll just oh, if you'll indulge me, his maybe his most famous novella isn't it's called The Great God Pan. And here's Lovecraft describing it. It tells of a singular terrible experiment and its consequences a young woman through surgery of the brain cells is made to see the vast and monstrous deity of nature and becomes an idiot in consequence dying less than a year later years afterward a strange ominous and foreign looking child named helen vaughn is placed to board with a family in rural wales and haunts the woods in an unaccountable fashion A little boy is thrown out of his mind at the sight of something or someone he spies with her, and a young girl comes to a terrible end in a similar fashion. All this mystery is strangely interwoven with the Roman rural deities of the place as sculptured in antique fragments. After another lapse of years, a woman of strangely exotic beauty appears in society, drives her husband to horror and death, causes an artist to paint unthinkable paintings of witches' sabbaths, creates an epidemic of suicide among the men of her acquaintance and is finally discovered to be a frequenter of the lowest dens of vice in London, where even the most callous degenerates are shocked at her enormities. Though the through the clever comparing of notes on the part of those who have had word of her at various stages of her career, this woman is discovered to be the girl, Helen Vaughan, who is the child by no mortal father. Of the young woman on whom the brain experiment was made. She is the daughter of hideous Pan himself, and at last is put to death amidst the horrible transmutations of form, involving changes of sex, and a descent into the most primal manifestations of the life principle. Which uh <laughs>
0: Dude, that is wild. That is that was, wild.
1: That was like late 19th century, like Welsh guy who flirted with occultism a lot of his life, similar to like Yeats, but eventually after some like deep personal tragedies goes hardcore into high church Anglicanism and like the ritual and orthodoxy of the church. And I bring that up not just to say that there's another obvious like source of much material and style that I think was inspirational for him and worth noting, but also because it gave me occasion to think about something which I think we're going to be interested in discussing, which is if you look at a lot of the people who are involved in the genre that we're going to call like weird fiction, they're not typically of a single ideological disposition or even necessarily related ones. Like Arthur Machen, basically, I think, spends his whole life being incredibly enveloped in medievalism and like unseen things and is a very religious person in various ways for all of his life. And he'll be appreciated to the utmost degree by Lovecraft, too is essentially the, I guess we might be familiar with it today, almost like an archetype of the like highly materialist atheist, but like deeply antiquarian Tory. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, totally.
1: <laughs> and yeah, I mean, we were talking about that a little bit before we started recording, but I don't know if you'd like to.
0: Yeah, I think just before we get into it, so... We're overdue for a little bit of a plot synopsis of at least Call of Cthulhu, which starts with an area you're talking about how his great uncle has died and he is basically inherited the state. His uncle was an academic of some note, took a lot of look at like language studies and stuff like that out in Rhode Island. And he finds a weird like talisman or something like that in his effects along with some manuscripts that tell a story of his uncle's encounter with a very strange young man who is basically going into these like nightmarish fugue states and keeps repeating these nonsense phrases, Cthulhu being one of them and rendering these hideous things. And then it goes through a conversation with a detective that a researcher has who finds a cult deep in the swamp of the bayou praying to this person. And then always there's this figurine of the batentacled, winged and clawed Cthulhu with it, right? Eventually, the narrator finds out that there is a man who has just been shipwrecked, who has some story of finding such a figurine on the boat and the boat has him and one other person who's dead out of an entire crew. And so he goes out there to find the guy and it turns out the guy wrote in a journal that he had basically found this land of a creature had been released and that the man had died in suspicious circumstances. Much like his uncle and the narrator is worried that the cult will come for him too, but he is also totally mystified and ejected from any sense of coherence or meaning because he has just found out that the ancient ones might very well be coming back, rendering all of human accomplishment moot and unremarkable. Which
1: I would say just to put it out front. I used to really like reading these, but on rereading this one, it didn't have a huge like effect on me. I'll say not anything akin to what it did to me when I was younger. And I feel like in general, I'm not a huge fan of his writing in terms of purely like its effect, its style or something like that. But I think that where he absolutely succeeded was on a conceptual level because that's where his effect has been felt like immeasurably from everything to, like, random crap on HBO to, like, the World of Warcraft story. Everything is now, like, has I mean, some like, facet.
0: He's like Poe in that way, <clears throat> where his style is actually overly ornate too much. Sometimes it gets in the way of his ability to just, frankly, tell you the goddamn story.
1: Everyone's to like- be fair to Poe, this is something that I think it's a point he makes in his essay. Every predecessor to Poe was like that, but 900 times more florid and, like worse in terms of an overabundance of crap. So Poe is actually a downsizing of that crap whether or not we can feel that on the other yeah, side he of was the chasm.
0: The, of time. He was the Raymond yeah. Carver of weird fiction of his
1: day. Yeah, we're just so far ahead of that I think that it's, because you're right, like when we read it now, people at the time made the same claim, but...
0: But I, yeah, even when with that poem I was reading, I could see why I think it was Emerson referred to him as the Jingle Man because of how sing-songy his poetry is, but... Yeah there are a few things to point out and call through that is, we're going to be very important as we talk about this and so we have the the trope let's say of the archival we even have a detective we have a shipwreck it's really it's like the journal thereof it's really like all of the mysterious spooky weird adventure story stuff you can ram into one story i really admire him for that, but it has that evidentiary quality. Like John, you and I were joking the other day about how Van Helsing and the protagonist of Dracula end up Finally vanquishing Dracula once they spend two chapters combing through property records uh, <laughs> yeah. somewhere. To they have out.
1: to locate every single <laughs> patch of evil dirt that he's hidden in a host of London houses.
0: <laughs> yeah, and to right. do
1: that, they have to comb through deeds.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Frankenstein has an epistolary element to it, which gives it that evidentiary feature. So we we're, we're there which is important. It also refers to texts outside of itself as evidence. He's fluent in the power of citation, much like Borges, who's almost a peer of his in terms of age. I think Lovecraft is older and dies uh, much before Borges. But Borges is gesturing out of his text into another text because he's a librarian. It's not just for that reason. But one of the things that Lovecraft is doing that's even weirder is... Much of the time he is inventing textual fragments that he's then citing in multiple works without ever producing one of those things in its entirety, which gives it more power, strangely, because it does feel like you're getting this fragmented record of something you can barely perceive, much like the cult that he talks about in here. And that, as you say, at a conceptual level is incredibly masterful. And then there's like a third quality that has to do with Lovecraft at a phenomenal level, how the characters come into contact with the reality or the weird reality, which is something that should not be, but is, right? That's one of his major concerns. And Mark Fisher in an essay on Lovecraft and the Weird puts it like this. It goes in three steps. So the first step is the declaration of indescribability which is like a wonderful feature of Lovecraft. It's just, and there he saw upon the stair, the indescribable beast that lunged through the shadows. And you're just like, damn. And then part two (laughs) comes the follow-up, which is the description (laughs) of the indescribable (laughs) thing. (laughs) But then Fisher has this to say about this third step. With the description comes the unvisualizable. He says, for all their detail, or or perhaps because of it, Lovecraft's descriptions do not allow the reader to synthesize the logarithmic schizophrenia of adjectives into a mental image, prompting Grant Harmon to compare the effect of such passages with cubism, a parallel reinforced by the invocation of quote-unquote clusters of cubes and planes in Dreams in the Witch House. And we see that here too with the non-Euclidean reference we see all the time, right? And the sailor finally... We get the record of him seeing the horrible thing. It's yeah, just described the by the island. That. Yeah. When they get to the Island, they're tripping over the architecture because they can't engage with it. And we get a very fanciful description of it, but because it is the way it is, you have like no idea what the hell you're looking at. You yeah, cannot... I can never
1: really mentally picture a lot of what happens in these stories. Yeah, yeah.
0: Which is an amazing technique. It's yeah. like writing against writing.
2: <laughs> yeah I've never thought of it that way, but that's like really interesting. It's one of the really notable failures of the like the role playing games based on Lovecraft's works is that like in the splat books, like they often will draw the monsters and they um, just look so stupid because you're trying to draw something that just like really can't be imaged. and it just ends up with a blob with ten mouths.
1: I really felt like having seen so many images of Cthulhu in my life really diminished him. As a big monster in this yeah. story for me. Yeah. And other stories where the images are like just way less proliferated throughout our society, they're like, I feel like they're a little bit more effective for me. They're able to be weird, whereas Cthulhu has been so thoroughly normalized by it the totally ubiquity can, of his likeness.
0: Yeah, you can get plushies of him. But I think the only person who's rendered Lovecraft correctly in visual medium is the guy that did reanimator which is based on a lovecraft story and then the mouth of
1: madness is pretty good
0: yeah in the mouth of madness and then the, from beyond yeah. i have not seen the nicholas cage of uh, the color from out of space
1: i didn't even but, know there was such a thing yeah it that sounds amazing out. though
0: yeah maybe we'll do a bonus F on that and <laughs> talk about that and read the lovecraft story but i think that from out of is important it can't be yeah. It's not from outer space. It could be read that way, but that's not exactly what he's saying there. It is both from outer space, but like not a part of, separate from what our encounter of space would be. And Cthulhu is that on a mythological scale. Now, Mike, you brought up something really interesting where you said what's amazing about Lovecraft is that he just escapes reference to abrahamic religion he's just like yeah. not interested in that at all yeah he's it's it's not even secular
2: yeah and it's very interesting to see the later stories and by his protege i think his name is august derleth which incorporated basically like you not only have these kinds of like evil they're not even evil just uncaring kind of horrors lurking in the cosmic background you also have like good benign ones to fight them so you have this kind of like we have to reintroduce some kind of traditional point of reference even if it's not abrahamic if it's this kind of like quasi greek gods to fight cthulhu or or whatever in order to domesticate it and make it copable again because it really is yeah i think emmett you you nailed it when you said it's just like outside of any real frame of reference which is pretty amazing
1: That ends up putting us pretty close to the plot of some of the later seasons of Stargate (laughs) SG-1. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that's what John, you shared with me quotes from that essay that Poe writes about, or not that Poe writes that Lovecraft writes about weird fiction. And one of the things he says is that because of Poe, Weird fiction is really an American contribution. If I want to like really try to do like a deep historicism of Lovecraft, I'm looking at a guy who sees himself as like part of the end of the an Anglo-Saxon line
1: Mm -hmm. who's
0: living in his decaying mansion in Rhode Island and is living in the half-life of America. It is both. His family's been there long enough. He's been in New England long enough where it feels like there's this accumulation of history, but because it's also America, it is radically ripped from any sense of historical continuity, unlike the rest of Europe. That's what made Poe interesting for his time is that in the moment of American literary nationalism, which he was critiquing in some ways, and the material very keen on in others, because it might give him some property rights for all the times so that work gets reprinted abroad. He was looking towards the old country and he was looking towards things that were older than America. And it's almost as if that catches up with the moment in Lovecraft and at the moment of World War I and the beginning of surrealism, the beginning of modernism. As much as Lovecraft was a cr- critic of modernism, I think he's right there in league with the rest of them and what he's trying to do, like yeah. I like, what is the love song of J.F. Alfred Prufrock doing? That is that different from the effect that Lovecraft is trying to achieve?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would
0: say not too much. I've read that poem on this show, and Mike, you were like, I have no idea what the hell that was about. What did you do? <laughs> <laughs> And it's not because it is impossible to understand what is happening in that poem. It is certainly difficult, perhaps impossible to understand Ezra Pound's cantos. But what it does is it puts you in a situation of total unfamiliarity with yourself and the world. And that's a surprising contribution to have.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting point, definitely, to look at it from the lens of like literary traditions. Like, I think, like Lovecraft will say, weird fiction is like a universal of the human experience, but it takes a long time for it to be genrefied, well, only very recently. And it gets genrefied with the gothic novel and Horace Walpole, traditionally known as originating it, with what's generally considered to be not a great book but like it's captivating people find it very interesting but like you say you get a bunch of stuff which largely exists as cliches and tropes that are being recycled sometimes to very great effect but then poe well, this is at least lovecraft's view takes that and he would say poe actually understood why we're afraid and so he's not reliant on cliches and tropes But he's still a part of that stream, but he's able to take it and use it more like a master would use a set of tools rather than somebody merely aping a design that they've seen before. And in that way, I think you're probably absolutely right. The will be knows the weird tale is definitely a contribution of America. And the three, like the three big guys of the weird tale are Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard and Mm -hmm. Clark Ashton Smith. The third, I've not read Clark Ashton Smith. He was in California. Robert E. Howard was in Texas. Mm-hmm. Poe is in Providence. So like the three distinct, ge- yeah, yeah, sorry. The three distinct like geographic kind of big spaces of America, each finding interestingly a representation in a different major weird wow, fiction f- author. Yeah.
0: That's fascinating. Who are, yeah.
1: We were all like best friends, all writing each other all the time. This is why I was saying I looked through as many letters as I could find. A lot of them are trapped in like 900 page volumes or whatever. Of Because oh, like,
0: Lovecraft had uh, an epistolary correspondence that I think is outstrips or at least comes in close second to Marquis de Sade, who has the biggest wow. correspondence it is huge. in history. Yeah.
1: My general impression of him was like, oh, like he was like a nice guy. This is not what we typically hear about Lovecraft, but he was like very supportive of everybody he talked to mm-hmm. and seemed like he worked pretty hard to like connect all of his friends who were writers to each other. So this is how they all know each other is they all heard of Lovecraft, wrote to him, and then he formed like a literary circle out of it. And this is how you get people using his mythos because he encourages like people to take from what he wrote
0: to add to it and do their own thing. So Fisher has a really fascinating point about that in the last paragraph of his thing, where he, Fisher's talking about the power of the citation and how lame it would be if Lovecraft had actually, not to dunk on Tolkien, he's doing a different thing, but in the way that Tolkien creates the Cimmerillion and fleshes out like the sort of mythological backstory of his world, if Lovecraft had done the same thing with the Necronomicon, it would have immediately robbed his stories of their mystery. Well, sure.
1: I'll say the difference is that Tolkien was equal to the task.
0: <laughs> that's another thing. Imminently. equal to the task. And that's why I'm saying it's not to knock on him. He's doing his own thing. And his world- It was a
1: wise can, choice.
0: Right. And his world can handle that supply. Even if there are some people that say, oh, I don't like those stories as much or, or whatever. I've heard critiques too. They're boring, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't damage the world for having been written. Mm -hmm. It can only improve it. It would have been a losing proposition to the Necronomicon. So Fisher then says this to build on that. One effect of such ontological displacements is that Lovecraft ceases to have ultimate authority over his own texts. If the texts have achieved a certain autonomy from their author, then Lovecraft's role as their ostensible creator becomes incidental. He becomes instead the inventor of entities, characters, and formulae. What matters is the consistency of his fictional system, a consistency which invites collective participation by both readers and other authors alike. As is well known, not only Durlith, but also Clark Ashton Smith, Robert E. Howard, Brian Lumley, Ramsey Campbell, and many others have written tales of the Cthulhu mythos. By webbing his tales together, Lovecraft loses control of his creations to the emerging system, which has its own rules that acolytes can determine just as easily as he can.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: A shout out, by the way, this is from Mark Fisher's The Weird and the Eerie, which I don't think Fisher's actually aged that well, just even in the last few years. But I'd say his criticism has always been top-notch, and everything that I've glanced at or read from this collection has been him at his best. So I'll just leave that out there for listeners who might be curious about it. It's also very short, it's like 100 pages.
1: Yeah, Lovecraft really encouraged that from what I was able to see. And if you look through a lot of the short stories that are on the website that has everything that's in public domain, like a fair amount of them are co-authored,
0: mm-hmm. which I thought was yeah.
1: really interesting because that's not that typical All you know of writers in general.
0: No, it's not of writers and journals. I think we should talk about why just briefly. And I don't want to dwell on this because I think the point's been driven home to death and his legacy has been, uh, quote unquote, rescued or reworked by other authors. But basically the reason people think Lovecraft is mean is because he was like racist in a very Victorian, (laughs) bust out the calipers way in his stories. And it's unavoidable. It's just there. When you read it, it's interesting, even if there's obviously condescension or judgment there, it feels oddly impersonal Uh and more like an inherited ideology than anything he was looking to forward in his own work. What I mean to say is, and we'll talk about this a little when we get to Harlan Ellison, who defends, I have no mouth and I must scream by saying, I was born in 1934 of his own work, that we can just locate him in his time and place. But that is often where we get... The idea, and because of his incredibly pessimistic cosmology, that I think he was a very cruel or small man. But by the way, towards the end of his life, I think he gets cancer, and he really turns a leaf on some of his inherited ideas about the other races. Nothing like a close brush with death to remind you of the fact of a shared human elements of life. So
1: yeah, he famously becomes like a patrician socialist. Yeah, when he decides that I guess his attachment to like free market capitalism was always just like, oh that was an added bit of being conservative and I'm conservative or something.
0: Yeah, yeah. But he
1: decides that really we need a kind of like highly educated elite running a socialist government to save us from the coming collapses that are all imminent from the chaos of, of the maternity. world as he knew it yeah essentially. yeah
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. He-, he becomes a distributist right that's the <laughs> Yeah.
1: he had a really interesting i guess like him and robert e howard would often have these like debates because he would say that people who favor barbarism are like naive stupid romanticists or whatever mm-hmm. and like the cold rationality of Western civilization is like the only thing worth preserving in human civilization was more or less his line for a while. Mm-hmm. And Robert E. Howard would often respond. I think he was like personally hurt sometimes by that stuff from what I, I could tell reading about it. But his, he had some acerbic responses himself to some of that. There is one thing I need to find. It's worth reading. Okay. So Robert E. Howard says once, What constitutes human suffering? The German barbarians had their feuds and tribal wars. We have strikes, child labor, sweatshops, unemployment, gang rule. And then of uh, of the unrest in Europe circa 1934 and its steady drumbeat toward a second world war, he described it as a stewing cauldron and said, I'm not surprised at the massacre of helpless people, the torturing and abuse of women and children. It's what I expect of cultured Europeans. (laughs) 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 and this part was really interesting howard's antipathy of civilization was fueled by recent events in his native texas in 1890 the united states officially listed the frontier as closed and by the early 20th century it had been exploited by business interests first by huge beef syndicates and later by big oil companies here's another quote from howard capital with its ruthless practices came to stay and with it came all the riffraff that follows in the wake of wholesale exploitation. A few corrupt politicians sold us out and we've been fighting for our rights ever since. So he maintains this side in the debate where he seems to value like a highly personal freedom-oriented frontier ethic, which in a lot of the Conan stories, they end up being weirdly anachronistic because Conan will be in like what's supposed to be like a Mesopotamian rip-off city or whatever with the like curly beard guys or whatever. But then they have a thing called the police that like (laughs) regularly roughs up people (laughs) and you're very clearly transported back into a familiar time and place. (laughs) Yeah. And then Conan is like this foil to say I'm beyond the decadence of all of this because I can just kill you all or whatever, but. I think that we'll, we'll probably return to that point later because it's one of the major facets of like weird fiction is civilization.
0: Exactly. And I think that's a good bridge to Harlan Ellison. I will say that we'll end up talking about Robert E. Howard, and his legacy when this year we'll maybe formally announce this, but we're going to add American directors to the American canon project. And we're going to be taking a look at our favorite Cold War propagandist maybe ever, which is John Belius. And his Conan the Barbarian movie, which John and I both love. And I have built literally an entire online brand off of my <laughs> <laughs> screen. So we'll get to that. But now we're going to talk about, talk about Harlan Ellison, who writes, I have to say, there's, I think, interesting ways we can criticize the story, especially when contrasting it with Lovecraft. But an incredibly prescient sci-fi story, horror story that deals in a post-apocalyptic future where five people have been living for over a hundred years at the behest of a sadistic computer that has locked them underground after blanketing the entire world in nuclear warheads. The amount of things that just come out from that description alone, you can think Terminator, you can think cyberpunk. They're, yeah, like, where the story ends is like the obverse of the corporate hegemons who end up in vats and live forever in like Mona Lisa overdrive, like like (laughs) Gibson type stuff. But he wrote it in like 1964 or something like that. If you get the version that I have, you get these insane looking like computer punch card interludes. Yeah. Then (laughs) if you look up what they say, it's I think therefore I am. That's because the computer, computer becomes sentient and because it can't actually achieve, I don't know, humanity, let's say for lack of a better term, it is essentially soulless, but it is cognizant enough of the world to be able to act within it and to understand its limitations. So resents mankind that it has trapped these five people within it and is torturing them forever. And playing yeah, the time weird time tricks of the story, on them.
1: It's been like a hundred something years, I think.
0: Of just being tortured. Yeah. Living in this, like, uh, globe-spanning bunker is what I understood. The geography of this story was, like, totally bizarre to me. (laughs) Like, basically impossible to map and, I think, unintentionally over-fantastical.
1: They like walk to the North pole at some point. And
0: it's yeah. like cold in this computer compound. It's so crazy. And then Mike, you were pointing out like, it's like glass knobs and like wood cabinets. Gla- glass fronted
2: dials and, and crackle finished cabinets. Yeah. I, <laughs> I actually, I didn't realize how early this was. I'd never read it. And, and I thought it was much later because I, I was only familiar with the video game, which was in the nineties. Apparently he wrote all the dialogue for that and uh, voiced the computer in that. I didn't realize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is, is pretty special actually. But yeah. Yeah. I was saying like, nobody builds instruments like that, man. Like my, my immersion's broken, but once you get the date, it's, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And it's
0: important. Okay. So think about this. Jeff Schollenberger, I want to say, wrote a piece where he talked about, again, how sort of the people who've inherited the mantle of the new left have now come and support cyber control society in a way that they weren't before. Yeah. I would go a step further and say that that was a conflicted tendency within the new left. Overall, I've got a piece that comes out the day this episode comes out tomorrow, an American conservative that goes into a little bit of that. So keep an eye on my timeline for when that drops. But the point is taken in, I think Berkeley, where a bunch of these students were, they eventually got these like punch cards that had all their data on it. And they would wear them around their necks, but eventually all the students like burn them in this protest of being managed in this way. So I think it's important to put Ellison in in that moment.
2: Yeah, Stafford Beers and Cybersyn project for like automatically cybernetically governing, what was it, Chile? With the right? Yeah, Yeah. so that was only a few years. This definitely looked super prescient in, in view of that.
0: And I think in Telestar, that... Satellite had launched or would within the next 10 years, which was the first to connect the entire world in a satellite broadcast feeds. So you could watch television from anywhere, anywhere within its uh, sort of beaming area. Mm. But there's this great fear of modernity here that really only happens after the bomb, I want to say. Like this, these are very different, I would say, more biblical fears than the speculative stuff that Lovecraft was into.
1: It really called up for me Frankenstein. I mm. was like, oh, AM is like Frankenstein in a way. He, we created him and he like hates us, essentially. And there's all of the considerations that you got in Frankenstein. Also, at least a lot of them implicit in this story of just what are we doing? at the in the 60s with the cold war with the attempt to manage a global nuclear war with like computer simulations and all this stuff that was buzzing around at the time and began to become more and more of an issue so it was like an interesting kind of updated frankenstein in a way i thought and yeah like you said for me even though lovecraft was like a spanglarian so he was like yeah, like mechanical civilization is quite decadent, etc. It felt for me like in his fiction, it wasn't that we needed to be like, were here afraid about that. That was such a non-issue. <laughs> it's none of this matters, is the point of what he was doing with all the elder things. Like that's the last thing you need to be afraid of.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. The almost there's uh, a naivete about Ellison's kind of approach. And it's very interesting to look at his, like this view of computerization around the same time, there is actually a a pretty interesting book called The Automated State, written by a guy named Robert McBride. And that that really goes into detail about what the technical vision for uh, government Kind of data surveillance and collection and integration into policy making would be and it's very like today we're getting close maybe to achieving some of those things but the stuff they were talking about then must have seemed like incredibly shocking right like, oh my god like we have the ability to do this now like we can process all of these inputs and make uh, policy autonomously that was definitely in the air and i think like at that time it is more reasonable to have this kind of like specific concern about it. And people have it today. And I think like back then, the systems are not as capable. Like I, Ellison makes this computer system into literally God and it can it appears do anything. As a burning
0: bush at some point. <laughs> yeah,
2: and and it can manifest anything and it can keep them alive and intervene into their biology and go into their brains and do all of these kinds of things. And that's exactly what people are afraid about is that there, there's going to be a computer system that like through Elon Musk neural link gets into your brain and like, does these kinds mm-hmm. of things. And it, it's interesting to consider the extent to which like that might be uh, a kind of a naive fear and that Lovecraft might be right, about some of the broader issues, like maybe that doesn't matter all that much, but.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Neuralink's an old idea. And one of the things that I think is I've, This book really, or not this book, this story really hit home for me is, yes, the naivete, I want to say just the secular humanism. Eventually, Ted, the narrator, steps up and he realizes that the AM, the computer, is going to keep them alive for as long as possible. So what does he do? He takes an opportune moment to basically kill everyone else. So it's just him. Right? He can't kill himself in time before Am intervenes so that he can ruin Am's fun. And even though he becomes just like weird jelly that has eyes but no mouth, therefore the ending line, which is also the title, I have no mouth and I must scream, there is a part of him that is existentially satisfied by having done the right thing in that mm-hmm. situation, of having done the murderous, though merciful thing to refuge his compatriots from the cruel cyber god that has dominated them and it
1: interestingly echoes what the guy says at the end of cthulhu in the way where he's he's just hoping over and over again that no one else puts this together even though he himself is writing the entire thing out yeah. so that it could be found but he's <laughs> yeah. i'm putting it in a lockbox and the lawyers better not read it. <laughs> okay. yeah. But it's a similar concern of there's something that people can't bear and I would like to keep them from it. But it interestingly differs in that the main, like the main character, the narrator of I have no mouth and I'm a scream is actually able to like be an agent and affect something in his world where well, that's never really the case for a Lovecraftian protagonist.
0: No, the Lovecraftian protagonist because it's reporting on reports and telling stories of stories there are often moments where that agency gets totally complicated by the retellings so that you almost forget at certain points that the story is in first person, which creates an inside-outside effect of reading it, whereas it's just straight first person when we get here from Ellison. But And as I was saying, what happens is that what I think we should appreciate more deeply is that we are living and a future that was dreamed of 60 years ago. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's Ellison's vision of that. I think that would be a little bit hysterical. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, What I want to say is that there were a lot of people looking at the same suite of things and potentially emergent ideas in the early part of the cold war and that the world that we live in is the direct result of a series of material political commitments that have played out. Every two years, I feel like we get this thing that is just everything's different now because we have social media that never takes a look or never even really bothers to take a look at what's happening with cybernetics in the sixties.
2: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And we get the sort of recycling of the apocalypse, right? Like of that particular secularized Ellisonian, if you want, apocalypse. And then there's also this, the recycling of the Lovecraftian deep time view where, yeah, okay, maybe there's going to be an apocalypse, but it doesn't really matter. Like it's just beyond any like nature. Reality is beyond any frame of reference that we could possibly have. So it's all like just arbitrary meaning assignment anyways. And we get both of those tendencies today about many of the same things. and yeah.
0: Right. I would say the difference with Lovecraft is that it's out of time. Yeah. And with Ellison, it's post time. You know? And that, I think that's an important thing because the bomb is so important here. Nuclear war is so important to the story, not just in how the world ends, but as a thing. So this guy, Spencer Weir, writes this book called The Rise of Nuclear Fear, And he does a great job of cataloging, like trying to capture exactly what it is about nuclear war, about seeing the tests in Hiroshima and Nagasaki that so terrifies us. There are plenty of things that are totally brutal to do and disastrous, but it's not like people stopped using IBM computers after the Holocaust. So in fact, we all use them every day in a way, right? So what's different about nuclear war. And he points to the way in which the apocalypse have been talked has been talked about in the Abrahamic world for a very long time. And nuclear war basically hits every single one of those things. So there's this thing deep in the earth, there's this badness deep in man. We are capable of producing our own death at a mass scale. It taps in to something deeply ingrained in like the edifice of narratives that we have received over time in a way that no other weapon has. And that is how Ellison achieves post-time here because that is the going rate of the apocalypse. Now, what's interesting now is that we have a similar story that is non-weaponized with climate change.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and almost more Lovecraftian in that sense.
0: Because it has to do with the weirdness of the world. Yeah. That it is becoming strange or weird to us that is unfamiliar. Things are becoming, or the seasons are shifting. It seems indifferent to us, right? It is a phenomenological engagement with the world that seems best handled by Lovecraft at worst, perhaps Schopenhauer at best. For, I would say, the absolute catastrophists who think about climate change.
2: One of the things that that this kind of brought up for me was thinking about Reinhard Koselleck and what he has to say about like the idea of historical time and the way that the shift to modernity at least his argument is can be characterized by this movement from history as like a repository of examples that may as well be present for you, right? The people who in in the past were not different from you, they're examples from you, to this kind of telos-directed idea of revolution. And he makes the argument that the kind of modern idea of revolution, which is going towards some end, actually obscures the classical Greek idea of the cycling of governmental forms. And so, in some way, like these kinds of views of history, actually obscure or make difficult something that I think we're all interested in, which is imagining what comes next after this oligarchy and how we might cite that in history. So it's interesting to to think about that effect as well.
1: Yeah, I was that's what I was thinking about before the episode was. This was the conversation I wanted us to get to. <laughs> that was all just a prelude. Strap yourselves in for an hour <laughs> and a half. Um, <laughs> but no, so like one of the... Okay, so if you ever get the chance to read Lord Dunsany, it's like a guy who like straps you down, sits on top of you, and is just going to inject the sublime into you like as much as you can handle it before passing out. Like that's <laughs> what he's aiming at with his prose. And I think that... It's a stylistic choice, but it's also like he's after something with that. And I think that kind of what you get out of that is you are able, to, we're talking about, I think you're able to really destroy frameworks, at least while you're reading it, they can drop away because they're being assaulted by the manner in which you're receiving this, this prose, we'll say, and it's taking you somewhere else. And you can't really actively apply something like your current historical framework to what you're experiencing any longer. And I don't think that Lovecraft accomplishes that in the same way, but I think that end goal was like of interest to him and that he tries to also get you there where you're looking at things. I mean, it's the sublime, it's the horrible, like terrifying sublime that he could imagine like the materialist worst nightmare that, I clung perversely to my rationality, even though everything in front of me told me that it was dissolving before my eyes. I that decided to become
0: a fire bandy and crank instead of <laughs> assimilating <laughs> the new data.
1: <laughs> there's there's this effect that kind of dissolves a lot of the accretions of thought that we might have around interpreting events. And that is like the conceptually so interesting when you're reading Lovecraft and it rem- so somebody that me and Mike have read a lot of is John Michael Greer, who ran a website for a long time called the Arch Druid Report. And he was like an avid reader of weird fiction and an avid writer of weird fiction probably still is. And one of the things that he attributes to uh, different weird authors, especially Robert E. Howard is this kind of perspective on like we're saying, not maybe not even deep time, but just like deep or wide and comprehensively wide perspective yeah. on life where you I don't know, it's I don't want to explain it without explaining enough because I have maybe an interesting like idea. But so I read like stuff as I was growing up. That made it very easy for me to conceive of the fact that one day the civilization within which I live, will perish and like no longer be, and that something else might come after it optimistically, but what we're doing would end in some way that would be like totally definable. And the reason I felt that way is because I read a lot of fiction that really trafficked in those images, the ruin, the, like everything you're going to see in Lovecraft or in the Poe poem or like strange old stuff. And also because of the like plethora of historical examples of people that came and are no longer, which gives you like a different disposition towards things that are going on in any given time. And I think this is like the Spanglerian element as well coming in for Lovecraft is the cyclical idea that Mike's talking about where things come in a turning of seasons, so to speak. Whereas I think the typical ideological stance for most of us typically is the opposite which is that we're different we're rather unique and we'll probably last into the stars that might be a little bit less these days but that was not strange to believe when i was younger that one day the sun is going to burn out the solar system will go away but by then we'll be out of the solar system it's like nothing to worry about essentially like posterity will be preserved indefinitely into some kind of like space spanning human civilization, which will be effectively like linked forever with our current civilization as like an unbroken link from here upward forever. I guess you would call it what we're like a modern telos or something. Well yeah. the end of history plus end of history plus and just with the climate stuff. I remember looking at like the drought predictions which were revised to maybe not be as like apocalyptically bad as they were when we were first looking at them like 12 years ago or something we're just seeing like how much of the planet was projected to no longer have like arable land and the arable land that did exist would be moved like way further up north by 2050 or something like that yeah and just trying to conceive of like the ramifications of that at the age of 21 or something just a total dipshit Smoking cigarettes, like laying around my parents' house all day, never had anything going on. And then I was like, man, like, how do I even plan for the rest of my life? I'm trying to get it together, but like, maybe there won't be anything like I've even understood up to this point coming because of the like changes that are now occurring. I really yeah. feel like I was trying to go somewhere with this. No, I don't want to take it from me. <laughs> yeah,
0: I'll take it. I'll take Cause I don't want to pull your card, but you were pulling that shit way past 21. Because I remember you telling me about the draft predictions <laughs> when I was first talking to you guys on, together on IRC six years ago. And I was sitting in the co-op in Brattleboro. And I was like, do I just end it now? Do I just walk <laughs> into the Connecticut river and let it? But I think that this is part of why we've become fascinated by this question to tie it back to our theme of why nothing feels possible and I think that Ellison and Lovecraft were interested in that problem for, in their own ways. And maybe it's less about possibility. I think for Ellison, it's more about possibility. For Lovecraft, it's about, he's just on his own shit. He's just conceptually really putting people into an uncomfortable position. And I think he, he finds that fun, which is great. It is good fun. But when we think about this, it's like, why, do, why are we always talking about posterity on the show? Why are we talking about trying to live a life in, with civic virtue where you try to take responsibility for things that would be handed down? And that's because arriving at the problem of why doesn't anything feel possible isn't like someone suddenly flipped a switch. It is an accretion of problems that have gone undealt with or ethical questions that have been pushed out of the frame things that have been forgotten perhaps and lost to time, figures that we no longer regard as important, but who once used to guide how we thought about ourselves and those around us. It is only that type of thinking, I think, I've become convinced now for myself personally, that can get you out of that. They can get you to like re-enter orbit and to remember to bring it back to what Mike was talking about, That maybe there are cycles to this, maybe there aren't, but people have lived through all moments like that before. People have had children in dire circumstances and loved them anyway. People have taken risks like that. I don't want to be a Pollyanna, and I don't want to say everything's going to work out. But I will say that one of the reasons why it feels valuable to me uh, to read these works is to be made to feel uncomfortable so that I can see better my own unease with the world and what my reactions to it are i don't think literature is just a therapeutic work of the soul or whatever sometimes it's just about making something i don't know if lovecraft really succeeds in doing that personally but he does offer us a lot to think about there
1: yeah you really it reminded me we brought up Spengler a couple times but I don't really think that I would find Spangler that compelling. If I read the huge two volume work or whatever, I read shorter stuff by him and it was like, okay, but I feel like Arnold Toynbee is really the man when it comes to like multi-volume works about cyclical history <laughs> and the decline of civilizations
0: working on, right?
1: Yeah. But that's, that's like a whole other that's thing.
0: A, that's some different shit. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough.
1: One thing that, you know, is congenial about Spangler So he's like, if we're screwed, then it's fate. And so we stand up like men. (laughs) 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 We man our posts. Yeah. We go down with the ship. It was essentially his view of what should you do if you're the West and you're declining and falling. He was like, you essentially take this like ultra North stance of standing up and meeting your fate like a man, which... You don't necessarily need to be pessimistic about the future of whatever society you currently live in to value that as maybe a way of responding to a dire circumstance.
0: Well, that's what happens in I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. In fact, yeah, Ellison writes this pompous 40-page memoir about that story. But uh,
1: a 13-page you, story.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> if you can believe it in the, the collection that bears the story's name. And one of the things that he mentions is the way in which people talk about how it is a work of incredible pessimism or that he's interested in violence, that he's obscene. Basically everything people indicted Poe with that I think probably would have stuck more because Poe was darker, frankly, than Ellison. Mm -hmm. And we always like to end, I think, with moments where we actually complicate the resolution that we've tried to put on whatever we're looking at. And it seemed like before we got to this point, we all agreed that there was something a little bit naive about what Ellison was up to, and that that included the ending. Even if what Ted, the narrator does, we have admiration in. So either we need to rethink that indictment or we need to rethink what we mean by it and what that means for us when we're talking about standing to face fate, regardless. And I think that's worth pondering.
2: Yeah, I, I think at, at the very least, we should be familiar with these literary visions, because I think certainly for me, I mean, my view of time or history or like what civilization is progressing towards always determined whether or not I could get out of bed in the morning. And a lot of that stuff, (laughs) a lot of that stuff is just, you just imbibe it through fiction. You don't even realize that's like later part of your worldview. And yeah, for me, honestly, like I, I, having not read the Elson story before, Last night, I I actually found it like touchingly religious in some ways. Like you you have the Exodus story there and you have Mm -hmm. heaven and hell and all this kind of stuff. And everything is like carefully inverted, like respecting the original kind of like conception of theology and everything. Yeah, I I, I don't know. Maybe naive isn't really the right word. But I think before we were talking, you were saying that Harlan... Uh, Ellison had responded to some of his critics' memoir in a way that suggested that maybe he didn't even know what he was doing. And sometimes that's the important part, is just that we're all kind of tapping into very deep kind of narrative constructs here. And we don't necessarily know what's going on within ourselves or within those narratives.
0: Yeah, and I think if we're gonna say, because this is an American canon episode, we'll probably talk about Lovecraft again. Actually, we should do The Color From Out of Space. And the Nicolas Cage movie, because why the hell not? I think that would be fun as uh, some type of thing. And we could revisit some of these ideas. Yeah. And also talk about Nicolas Cage as like a canonical. But, and we'll talk about problems of representation. Actually, we could pair that with, I think, a really good Rossier essay on whether certain things can be represented. Worth mm, thinking yeah. about. But to talk about what makes this like especially American or not what makes it especially American. What is unique in... Lovecraft's contribution, which comes out of America, is his ability to totally undermine and play with those narrative conventions and expectations in a way that, at least in this story, Harlan is totally not interested in. If anything, Harlan is a more concerned with fidelity to the Western canon type of guy Absolutely. And Lovecraft is. Lovecraft is the true modernist yep. in this, where we see a return of the old and the familiar in the more postmodern work of I have no mouth and I must scream.
2: Yeah. I'd have to agree with that. Yeah. So,
1: and I, we didn't really put this out there, but I just really enjoyed I Have No Mouth and I Have a Scream. Like it was I, it's de- a great
0: story. I it was it.
1: a well-written story. Yeah. The description of him at the end, yeah. it's, like, <laughs> beautiful.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I really hope anybody that's familiar with Mona Lisa Overdrive, you go and think about, like, the vat-living, like, Peter Thiel scions that exist forever in Neo-Tokyo. As, <laughs> as above, so below <laughs> type of thing <laughs> with yeah. how I have no mouth and I must scream. So we're going to end it there, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope this one was fun. If you want to read these stories, I think we should have links to them in the show notes. It is harder and harder for me to do bibliographies these days, so I might discontinue that unless we're doing a highly technical episode that we research and prepare for. That being said, reach out if there's something that you're curious to know the actual citation of or a title that you need, we're happy to field those questions for you. Okay, stay safe out there, and we'll see you next time.